0: where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn.
1: And I'm Patrick Rapol.
0: We're coming to you on brand new microphones to discuss the 2011 Alexander Payne-directed film The Descendants. Uh, Patrick, had you seen The Descendants before?
1: I had, I had. Uh, 2011 is when we started, uh, me and my friend Jim Laskowski started hosting the podcast Directors Club, and one of our early episodes was on Alexander Payne. And I did So I didn't see it when it was in theaters, but I saw it maybe a year afterwards uh, in preparation for that. Uh, and I never liked it. I, I'm a fan of Alexander Payne, um, but this is the point where I have to jump off and he never recovers for me. Um, especially the early work, Election and Citizen Ruth. I'm just head over heels over. But uh, Descendants is, I think, a, a pretty bad movie. And I thought so at the time. And I thought maybe you know, age and wisdom would change that in preparation for this. And it didn't, it didn't. I do not like this movie. How, how about yourself? Had you seen this?
0: I had not. Um, I remember when you were preparing for the Alexander Payne episode, um, I think we saw Nebraska in theaters together around mm-hmm. that time. Um, and I I have seen some of his movies. I agree with you. I have fond memories of Election. I think if I watched it today, I'm not convinced it would hold up just given the subject matter. But there, there is a lot about that I like. I did enjoy Citizen Ruth. The other films of his that I've seen, uh, Sideways and About Schmidt, uh, I'm a little... I'm, I'm not as keen on. This was my first time seeing The Descendants and... I was going into it trying to be optimistic. I am still a bit of a naive holdout when it comes to the Oscars, even though every year I get ample evidence that Oscar awards are not an indicator that I'm going to like a movie or think that people should watch a movie but maybe it's just because it's February and I've had 11 months to forget but I was like oh finally I get to see a, a movie that was nominated for several Oscars and you know the the movies that we've watched so far um have had their they're enjoyable moments but they've been a little schlocky. and it's yeah. like oh i'm yeah, going to see sure. something of, of quality and I, I i agree with you i really don't think that was the case with the descendants i was i was pretty sorely disappointed by this movie I, can
1: i say this is my this is the worst movie we have covered on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we covered we Yikes. covered the michael shannon netflix bigfoot christmas movie right we, we covered the rancid gary shanling sex sci-fi sex comedy what planet are you from we did um, and we covered a direct to Hulu um, sort of tossed off uh, monster movie where you don't see the monster. Um, and this is, I feel, the worst movie that we have covered on this podcast. Which I, I don't think either of us entered this podcast thinking, oh, it's going to be a bad movies podcast. No, but, but no, it's just like the, not. the fact of the matter is, Judy Greer is someone who says yes, and yeah. a lot of the movies she says yes to she says are not because they're projects that are necessarily like prestigious and exciting. Right. Um this is a counterexample of that because this is in fact a movie that is prestigious, uh had a prestigious pedigree going in. Yes. Um and I'm sure it was very exciting to fly to Hawaii and have like three big scenes with George Clooney.
0: No no doubt. This must have been an incredible experience. I know in her memoir uh she talks about this being her uh her first Uh, invitation to be at the Oscars um, and how that was like such a dream for her as an actor um, to be on the red carpet Um, and she tells a story about uh, the gown that she was wearing started to come apart on the red carpet it had it had like this very like intricate beadwork down the front and the beads started falling off so she would you know, get her picture taken, and then her publicist would run in with a sewing kit and be like sewing these tiny little beads <laughs> back onto her gown, and then clear out for more photos. She looks that, fabulous, by that, the way. That
1: is the Judy Greer Oscar story. That's yeah, just, it that's sure how is. it had to work <laughs> out for her. And
0: and then she says that after the red carpet, she went directly to the bathroom and removed her spanks. Yes,
1: you going to sit down for a couple hours. You got to breathe.
0: Exactly, exactly. I, I agree with you. When we started the podcast I wasn't thinking of this as like we're gonna be we're gonna be doing a a bad film podcast um you know she doesn't say no to many projects um she's a character actor I I was expecting that we would be all over the place in terms of our reactions to the movies um we've had variety I mean genre wise Mm -hmm. we've had we've had a fair amount of variety only on the fourth episode but Yes, so far it seems like uh, these are, are movies that we have misgivings about. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I was a fan of Good Boy, but like that was a right. mixed that was a mixed response from this podcast on yeah. Good Boy. So I can't count that as the, you know necessarily in the two thumbs up column. But uh, this movie for me is the worst movie we have covered specifically because it thinks it's so great and just I I'm just I get my skin crawls as I watch it because it really feels so smug and satisfied and like and and so lazy it just feels like it is this process delivered version of the kind of movie of that like Oscar bait dramedy oh it's about you know it's about hard issues but then there's some comedy and there's yeah. all sorts of like you know, characters coming in it, like, it just, and there's a road trip, and there's sad, you know, acoustic guitar music, and it's just, like, it just, it feels like the worst version of of that sort of thing, which, like, I do like About Schmidt, but About Schmidt is, you know, like, already a movie I'm not necessarily super enthusiastic about, and this is, like, oh, this is the bad, like, watered-down version of an About Schmidt
0: It it does have a lot of things in common um, with About Schmidt. It does have a a man who's experiencing the loss of his wife. It does have um, an A-list celebrity playing against type, sort of. It does sort of have that mix of, of humor and sadness. And I didn't particularly like either movie. Yeah, I—I <laughs> um, I mean, I have—I hadn't seen About Schmidt since it came out. It was a big deal when it came out. Like oh, that, sure. That and Sideways. Well, Jack like...
1: Nicholson—you know his, his output was very—you know—he hadn't made a lot of movies, and mm-hmm. it was like as good as it gets, is like 1997. Yeah. He was in a Sean Penn movie called The Pledge, which was sort of a bomb where he's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a semi-revenge action thriller sort of a thing, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then about Schmidt was this like, oh my God, it's finally Nichol- uh, Jack Nicholson playing someone who's like his age. It's like finally, so like he's not right. the cool guy. It's him playing the schlubby, like sad guy from Omaha. Right. And and it was, and it just felt like this very daring choice. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Every, every reaction to that movie was either to Jack Nicholson's performance or, and also the fact that Kathy Bates is naked for like two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, so I, I I just remember when it came out, it was like, everyone was talking about it and I ended up seeing it like right away. And I was like, oh, I guess. Um, But I don't think that's, that's a movie that I'm in any, uh, in any rush to revisit So, if you haven't seen The Descendants, uh, I am going to do a quick recap. As we've been saying, this is a very Oscar-baity movie where there's a lot of character development and all that crap. Uh, (laughs) Yuck. (laughs) Um, So, this is gonna be a shorter uh, summary focused on um, leading us to the Judy Greer character. Matt is a real estate lawyer from Hawaii who is the trust holder of a large undeveloped parcel of land. His wife Liz has been in a coma after a boating accident and is being taken off life support and his extended family can't come to an agreement on who to sell their land to. He's also struggling with having to be an actual parent to his two daughters, 10-year-old Scotty and 17-year-old Alex. Matt and Alex visit friends and family around Hawaii to tell them that Liz is being taken off life support, but not before Matt finds out Liz was cheating on him with a real estate agent named Brian. While preparing for Liz to die, Matt and Alex work on tracking down Brian. He eventually confronts Brian, tells him where he can visit Liz in the hospital, and kisses Brian's wife Julie on the mouth on the way out. Matt decides he doesn't want to sell the land because the family is connected to it even though he admits they are super white and disconnected from the culture. But also Brian was the real estate developer who would have benefited from the sale. Julie brings flowers to Liz's hospital room because she learned about Brian's infidelity. Julie forgives Liz. Matt says goodbye to Liz. Liz dies. Matt and their daughters cast her ashes into the ocean. The end. Thank fuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's a it's a long one. It's a it's like two hours.
0: Yeah, it is. And uh, I saw it twice because <laughs> I was having trouble paying attention the first time. I didn't find this movie compelling.
1: No, the first right right off the bat, the issue with this movie is that it is going to spoon feed you everything, and that's like part yeah. of why it feels so like just shitty and condescending. Is it is just going to dump a bunch of exposition in the form of a voiceover that is very important for like the first fifteen minutes of the movie and then goes away completely? Like it's not just here's exposition in the first five minutes to set up the plot. It's also like his internal monologue happens a bunch in the movie. Yeah, and it's this whole thing where he's talking about the logistics of this land deal and then in like during that he's interrupted with a thought of. Oh, she's probably going to pull out of her coma. It's probably going to be okay. And it's like this idea that what we're hearing is this subjective sort of internal uh, point of view of him and his worried thoughts and his anxiety. And then that just goes away. And then then there's like lines where it's like literally just saying like, Hawaii is like a metaphor for this movie. And here's how it's a (laughs) metaphor for this movie.
0: Voiceovers, I feel, are often a clunky device in in movies. They're an inelegant way of conveying information to the audience. But this was one of the most egregious examples I've seen, especially because you're right, it, it is so heavily relied on in the first act and then basically disappears from the film. It, it's, it seems very inconsistent.
1: And it also like that, that specifically is the reason why, you know, at least I couldn't, and you couldn't like, I feel like engage as an audience member is because when you are on this like little guided museum tour, uh, of voiceover, what you're not doing is discovering things about the characters. Right. And when you're not discovering them personally, those discoveries don't feel owned. Like, you don't like, you, they don't feel like your observations. Like, there's a moment early on in Sideways where Paul Giamatti's character is doing the crossword in pen. And if you know anything about doing the crossword, you know, the physical New York Times crossword. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, he's doing it in pen. I know something about him. And aren't I clever for noticing this or noticing this interaction between him and, you know, like there's all this stuff that it gets you hooked and invested. Right. And this is uh, this is a movie that like really resists you getting invested in it.
0: Especially because the information that you get in the voiceovers, some of it is exposition that might be difficult to convey otherwise like the whole setup of the the family is the steward of this this large parcel of land in Kauai and they've they've been trying to figure out what to do with it that can be a difficult kind of thing
1: except that this movie is the worst of both worlds because last episode you talked about the screenwriting trick that you hate the most of where someone just refers to someone as my brother oh yeah whatever this is has the like way worse than you're well of course you're my former babysitter is mr king good luck with the sale they say your decision will have an impact on the whole real estate world not to mention the whole landscape of Kauai. Hundreds of million dollars, yeah? Like, which is oh, like a God. neighbor or someone he has to visit to apologize because his younger daughter's acting up in the midst yeah. of her mother being in the hospital. And like, this character it just delivers the most tenured fucking exposition.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: as they're walking out the door, she's just like, they say this will change all of Kawhi. It's like it's almost like a like the beginning of like the first scene of a musical where like two people are like talking to R- each other. Right.
0: And and so maybe that's That's
1: the kind Max of... Biala's talk. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so it's like, okay, maybe that's the kind of thing you you that you do have as a voiceover or like a title card or something. But then the things that are actually in the voiceover are Matt saying things like, I'm the backup parent, where like that is the easiest thing to convey visually or to convey in a scene between Mm -hmm. two characters like like you don't need a voiceover saying that he's a that he's like a shitty absent parent Yeah, no
1: demonstrate to me that he's
0: a shitty absent parent yeah then the next level is like have
1: a scene where he's talking to his friend and he goes to his friend look I don't know what to do I'm the backup parent like that's the next level of that's not as good as demonstrating but it's better than having a voiceover that
0: seems like the kind of Exercise that that you would get in like, uh, like an undergraduate screenwriting class. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I I think (laughs) this
0: stuff. I think
1: part of why this stuff is so clunky, like I think part of the reason why we're uh we're sort of angry at this movie is also that not only did it get nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but it was like really critically loved. Yeah, it like pretty much across the board from from you know uh from the peter travers of the world but also from the a.o scots of the world mm-hmm. like like uh, film critics both lowbrow and highbrow said that this was just like an excellent version of the thing it was it it just was one of the best reviewed movies of the year it came out.
0: Yeah, it it won a Golden Globe for uh, Best Screenplay. Yeah. Uh, got an Oscar nomination, but didn't win. I don't know what it lost to.
1: The time that this movie was made feels like the last possible time that you can like get away with getting that kind of level of good review and do all of this like really shitty first-year film student bullshit. Mm-hmm. And like... I th- I feel like you couldn't make a movie like this. I mean, part of where you can't make a movie like this now because Spider Man isn't in it. But like, <laughs> but like right. you could not make a movie like this now that just doesn't that has that like heavy voiceover that people like buy. It's gonna be. Um, it's just it feels like super dated, much worse even than it did at the time. And at the time, it also like I you know I thought it was pretty bad.
0: Is there any movie? Where you feel like voiceover is an effective tool? Oh yes,
1: yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the very first thing that comes to mind is the informant, uh, where Matt the Steven Soderbergh movie, where Matt Damon has like a running internal monologue of non sequitur bullshit, and it like it sort of demonstrates it's this it's this movie about like whistleblowing on you know this big industry like price locking scandal. And this guy who is like at the center of the scandal by bringing all this information to the FBI or whatever. And but like inside of his head is just like a bunch of random facts. And like you learn so much about like how seriously he isn't taking this and how in over his head he is. And like Mm -hmm. how he just his conception of what is happening around him is like totally not what Mm -hmm. is reality. Mm -hmm. And like that is like a really effective, expressive way to do voiceover. Um, that's a, the first thing comes to mind. I'm sure if I sat down with a list of movies, I could, I could come up with more, yeah. but like definitely voiceover exposition, mm-hmm. um, is always just like the last resort. It's sure um, for me,
0: it, for me, it's a Christmas story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah um, that's
1: another great example where it's about the dramatic irony.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Without the, without the, the adult looking back at the kid, you, you could still get what's going on. You, you could still kind of get that it's like, you know, from the point of view of a child. So it's these little things that are just getting overblown. But the excellent writing and the and the way that it's delivered, it, it is such a great balance between laughing at one's childhood self and having great empathy. And yeah. it, it really helps to strike the balance of that right. movie. Right, and, and so much
1: of the humor does come from the dichotomy between the very erudite, verbose um, monologuing uh from the voiceover and just like what brainless little shits all the children yeah. actually are yeah. in every given scene yeah
0: it's true it's true just just, just Ralphie having the, that glassy-eyed stare while while the the purple prose of his adult self is explaining w- why he he can't move and can't utter a syllable it's yeah gets me every time
1: so so it's not a voiceover is never allowed thing but no. it's like but and then also it's just like it's so inconsistent in this i mean like obviously yeah. like the another example would be all those martin scorsese movies like goodfellas and wolf of wall street and mm-hmm. stuff like that where it's like this is about quick we're getting from scene to scene this mm-hmm. is a guided tour like this right. is the best guided tour you've ever fucking been on but like make no mistake this is a guided tour of my life of this you know of this world
0: yeah yeah and, and it's usually i mean especially with like wolf of wall- Wall Street, where it's like you know the unreliable narrator, someone who has like 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 a really um a really specific agenda in telling their own story. Um, So yeah, there it there it fits, but here it it just feels like like a really unnecessary crutch.
1: Yeah, like I think every example we've come up with, the specific writing has to be so flavorful and so revealing of character. Mm -hmm. And what is not really flavorful and revealing of character is a family seems exactly like an archipelago all part of the same whole and still separate and alone and always drifting slowly apart, which is like, that to me is just like the number one baby food. Open your mouth, idiots. I'm going to give you, this is a movie about something and here it is. Yeah. You can't fucking possibly piece together a metaphor yourself. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, and it's, it's one of the things where it's like, there could be a scene and I would think this would even still be too heavy handed if, uh, someone, if when because he, this happens when he's looking out the plane on at, to the islands. And if someone, and if his daughter, younger daughter, was like, Oh, yeah, look at the islands, he goes, Actually, it's an archipelago. And she goes, What's the difference? And he, like, gave the, def, gave a definition of archipelago that clearly reflects on what's happening to his family. Mm-hmm. That, even itself, I'd be like, All right, whatever. But, like, I wouldn't get mad. Right. <laughs> this right. movie constantly makes me mad. <laughs> um, I actually, so. Because of one of the reasons I'm mad is because I'm mad that so many critics seem to be- just love this movie when it came out. Mm-hmm. I have some points that I want to hit. that Because okay. I, I went through like a survey. I read like 40 contemporary reviews of the movie when it came out. Um, and I, they mostly largely said the same thing. There's a lot of points they all agree on. Mm-hmm. And I want to see if we agree on these. Sure. So the, so the first major thing that always got brought up is its depiction of Hawaii was so not what you expect from the movies. It wasn't a glamorous depiction of Hawaii. It was it showed Hawaii like a real lived-in urban Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do I have here? A quote from Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter. The film notably provides a most welcome, un-touristy view of Hawaii and everyday life on the islands, amplified by diverse weather, heavy clouds, mist and rain offset the expected sunny vistas. Was this something that registered for you watching this movie?
0: Not really. I will agree that there is a fair amount of scenes that are set at the hospital, at you know Matt's office. Um, I guess just people doing day-to-day things but that didn't strike me as an alternate view of hawaii no also this is this is a family of means so considerable means yes so they are spending time um i mean there there's there's plenty of scenes on the beaches there's scenes at uh exclusive clubs in hotels in in gorgeous like, vintage vacation cabins. So I've, I've been to Hawaii. Um, this was a long time ago. And it it did bring about some of my, like, tourist memories. There's even a scene where they're on Kauai and Scotty wants to uh, go uh, swimming with the sharks. And, and they're like, no, we can't do that. And it, it, it even sort of suggests that they... Um, that they indulge in the same leisure activities that tourists do. Liz, who is the um uh, the the wife and mother uh, who's in a coma, the reason that she's in a coma is because she's uh heavy into um into boating and she and there's an accident where she falls off the boat and is severely injured and that's why she's in the coma i I, I can understand kind of where they're coming from where there are a lot of movies where, Hawaii is this like pure escapism. the The movie that came to mind immediately was Punch Drunk Love, mm. um, where there's just this scene where um, where Adam Sandler's character and Emily Watson they're they're in this whirlwind romance and and they go off to Hawaii together and I think that's the first time they have sex and it's very romantic but it is very like oh this is the place we go to get away from our day to day lives this is this this you know Edenic. Um, Escape. Mm -hmm. And that's not what it is for these characters.
1: I think it would be extremely childish to look at the plot of this movie and assume that it would be the shot, the way it's shot in like. Uh, Blue Island or like or Blue Hawaii like an Elvis movie or something right. like it's just like of course it do- like of course it's like you see a traffic jam it's like well of course you do that's like right like it seems like such a low bar it's almost saying like this movie took place in Las Vegas and there were four scenes where people weren't gambling and yeah. it's like yeah it's a city like sometimes people got to eat like what, <laughs> like what do you what do you mean it's still about like they live in this like absurdly like upper-class suburb where yeah. there's just palm trees everywhere yeah. they have this beautiful pool and the back and yeah and like when you say when you think back on the movie and you go what is how does this movie depict Hawaii there's one shot that is like oh that's the shot that's like here's the vision of Hawaii mm-hmm. and it's the big crane shot when they go see their parcel of totally unperfect unspoiled land yeah. And it is just like the most jaw dropping, gorgeous thing ever. Yeah, and the fact that it's like, oh, but also there's clouds in the sky. I bet tourists go to Hawaii, and there are also clouds in the sky. Like clouds are what human beings see on in the sky. Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, all that beautiful green vegetation is there because there's a lot of rain, right? <laughs> like it's just it's,
1: it would seem extremely silly to expect anything different, and therefore extremely childish to give a movie points for depicting like yeah. the, especially when it is just like this isn't about impoverished life in Hawaii like no. if you're talking about like this is about what it's really like to live in Hawaii it's like oh so everyone is like really well off everyone has their own swimming pool and
0: yeah yeah this this is about a family who has has roots in Hawaii they're they're talking about the the generations of their family who have who have passed um this is not you know they're not tourists they're not people who just moved here they they've been um living in Hawaii for generations but they are extremely wealthy. Um, they, I mean, they have all of this land. But also, I mean, Matt is is a lawyer. They, again, with, with the with the ex, with the exposition in the beginning, he makes the point of saying, "We have all this land, but I just live off the salary that I have as a lawyer. <laughs> I only
1: live off my Tonight Show money. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's just like, oh well, <laughs> what a what a brave choice. I, I in the, it in in really this gorgeous feels like house. it feels
1: like a producer note where it's like this guy is literally royalty, maybe we should make him a little more relatable so that he has just like but I'm a good common sense dad who thinks to raise kids right. You want to give them, you know, it's like you don't yeah. want to spoil them. And it's like and then, you're you like live in opulence.
0: Also his children are spoiled brats. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> To give more of the backstory, which is, again, something that kind of they go back to, Matt's great, great, great grandmother was Hawaiian royalty. And that's why they have all of this land, because that was her inheritance. And it's just been kept by the family for generations. But there's, you know, what it's funny. They use a specific legal term in the voiceover to say, and this is why, our family can't hold on to the land anymore. I don't remember the legal term. I don't know what it means. <laughs> so I want to
1: I want to go to something. I want to go to the next point that critics uh-huh. every basically every critic who gave this movie a positive review notes that this had nuanced and subtle like emotions and it, and specifically the balance of the tonal shifts and the way it goes from comedy to drama or from tragedy to comedy it was very impressive for all the critics. And I, I think for me, part of why I can't get invested is because that voiceover is so heinous and it does keep me at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And the other thing for me is that there's no stakes that a character can affect any change on, um, which is to say that there is his wife in the coma, which very early on, we learned that she is not going to get out of the coma that she is going to be right. taken off life support. And, Then there is the land deal and the land deal is so confusing as to like what the stakes are because he said the way he frames it at the start is we have seven years to sell this land or else it goes up for sale is like the way he he doesn't he it's never like the, the the ticking clock never quite made sense to me as to like what the what will happen if they don't sell. And so there's this whole like oh you know you get the, that neighbor being like it's really going to change Kauai. you know like the, the idea is like he has pressure from the island itself to be like don't sell this to some resort hotel or golf course or whatever keep it in Hawaii and but then it's like but the this, this the premise as set up is in seven years it's going it's going to like go up for auction or we can sell it personally or something like that
0: I would assume that. I, I, and again, it's it's just sort of having to put the pieces together. If if there was some sort of subtext for the the real estate developers in the audience, it was certainly lost on me. My assumption would just be that the closer that the family gets to the end date that they have, the more leverage a buyer would have so they wouldn't get uh, as good of a deal as they can get seven years out. He never made
1: it clear that it's like the other option is it goes to the people. Like that is not in the movie no, that's as a never, possibility. That's never space. brought up.
0: I, I was sitting there wondering, is there no land trust? Like, is there no.
1: So there's not, there's not a like, we'll make it a national, we'll make it a state park. Right. We'll donate it to the state and they can do, you know, like yeah. Um. it is always like, either it's going to make us a lot of money or it's going to make someone else a lot of money. And, yeah. and you're already rich, my dude, so I don't care either way.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's also uh, Matt's cousins uh, who are also, you know, of his same generation and don't have the legal ability to make the decision, but because they're family, um, they're trying to convince him to go... Um, different ways and he invites them buyers.
1: to put in their input yeah. he's trying to yeah. be do right by the yeah exactly well.
0: yeah their they're family which that makes sense but but he does say in the beginning oh you know we all had money from previous sales of land but they squandered their money none of the cousins who we meet seem to be doing that no. poorly because there's no
1: desperate there's no financial desperation L- liter- present in this literally movie. literally the
0: next the, the next scene where you see him in in a in a conference room with his cousins, you know, in, in the voiceover he says, "Well, don't be put off by the fact that they're wearing these like scruffy Hawaiian shirts because in Hawaii um, some of the most powerful people dress like bums, and it's like, well, I thought you just said that that they're poor. Like, like, are they poor? Or are they powerful? Right. And it's like, uh, like Beau Bridges, um, who plays uh, his cousin Hugh, who who is gunning for this one particular person to buy. Matt is kind of setting it up, like, like, oh, they just want the money from the sale. This money that they don't, um, that they're not entitled to. I mean I'm not entitled to it, but I'm a lawyer, but they're really not entitled to it because they're poor. But also <laughs> None of us
1: are entitled to it, but definitely not them.
0: Yeah, but also cousin Hugh like like they have a conversation and he owns vacation property that he rents yeah. to to brian and, and julie who right. are the, the the like the real estate developer and his wife right and so it's like
1: there's also financial stakes for brian and julie but also the real estate developers who are vacationing in these vintage like
0: yeah 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 exactly where where it's like okay well will you have vacation properties that you rent out on this like 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 beachfront property on he, he specifically on Kauai. says you, uh,
1: you, the the properties on the trail or the properties yeah, by the bay.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so you, you have multiple you have multiple <laughs> vacation properties in like like one of the like prime destinations for rich people to go vacation. So like every
1: <laughs> single scene about the land deal, hundred percent checked out. Do not give a fuck whatsoever. Yeah. Other problem, we had a bad marriage. I was a bad parent. She yeah. didn't seem to like me very much, and I didn't like her. And then I found out she cheated on me. And it's like, well, those are low stakes. Like uh, she betrayed someone who had no emotional like connection to.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. At,
1: there's one scene where they're walking uh, in uh, Kauai, uh where he's like sort of telling stories about what it was like when they were younger. And that's literally the only image, like that brief moment. It's like a montage. It's like the the only moment we see anything good about their relationship whatsoever. So it's like, I certainly don't begrudge her for, you know, for like trying to find attention somewhere else. Right. So like, I'm certainly not feeling for you, George Clooney, for like, I mean, like I understand why you're angry and why this is like a complicated, conflicting emotion. But it's like, the stakes are so low.
0: Also, just in terms of those scenes, building your emotional reaction as an audience member, um, the, the choice that was made was for um, the, the soundtrack to be played like over the conversation. I mean, for me, the only reason that I knew what they were talking about was because I was watching with the subtitles on. Um, But if they weren't on, I I think it would just sort of be like, you you wouldn't really be able to hear the conversation. Mm. It was kind of murmury and mixed. There were several scenes like that where there were these like heavy conversations that were going on where you couldn't hear it because it was just the music pretty much, or it was cut like 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 the scene would just end and they would go on to another scene yeah um sometimes that can be effective but in this kind of movie where there's a lot of inertia around the character's emotional development it's a real gamble to to not have us right there and intimate and close with matt opening up about his days meeting his wife to his kids or um, or the scene where they finally tell his youngest daughter Scotty that her mother has been taken off yes life that, that that
1: that scene is played silently with music yeah because I, I guess it was just too intense to write or it's just maybe they thought it was more effective if you have to imagine it yourself
0: like you said when it's a movie that starts out by holding you at arm's length going back to that Um, to that way of building a scene doesn't serve it
1: right okay so in general the tragedy the drama the character stuff doesn't really work there is one thing I thought did work that sort of gets dropped away and it's really the only character arc that exists inside of George Clooney in this movie Mm -hmm. really which is like the only like tangible thing you can point to and say that's a change which is Early on in the movie, he kind of wields his grief like a weapon. And when people like push him too far, the knowledge that he holds that other people don't hold, whether it's about her cheating or about uh, her being taken off life support, like he will lash out and say it to someone. Like his daughter is it his daughter's, you know, griping at him in the pool. And she's like, Well, your mom's dead. Okay. And like he does it to hurt her. Mm-hmm. And there's like a there's a moment where the guy who was in the speedboat with the with his wife when she had the accident comes up to apologize and he's just like and he and and they just like walk by and don't give him any quarter. They don't say it's okay. They're just like fuck you or whatever. And they're just like they're entitled to more grief than he is and they're lashing out. And that's like an interesting like you know that's the old school Alexander Payne ugly side of Emotions and stuff.
0: I have to. I have to say, with with that scene with the with the guy who was driving the speedboat. What I got from that scene is that you know she's been on life support for like three to four weeks, and my impression was that every time he's seen them in the past three to four weeks, he's like had this conversation with them, and he is just putting all of his guilt on them mm-hmm. and like basically wanting them to do like that emotional work for him and forgive him and like console him right every time and th- and this was just like them saying no that's enough we can't but,
1: but in, there is a cuddly version of this movie where they do do that and instead and instead they they or hostile towards him. Right. In and, and like the movie doesn't doesn't make him like oh what a oh god I hate him so much or whatever. Like I don't know. And and but then there's the scene at the end where Robert Forster says that she his you know he is bringing up so many adjectives about how what a wonderful daughter he had and right. you know why she was such a great wife. And one of those adjectives is faithful and they just let it slide. Everyone in the room is just like we know that's not true, but mm-hmm. we're not going to say anything. We're just going to let him keep this version of her in her in his head and we're not going to ruin it for him. And that was like the only thing i could even detect is like i guess he's a different person like like his relationship like the way he treats the kids is not different it's that the kids are less hostile towards him at the end of the movie
0: matt and alex uh end up bonding over trying to track down the man who's cuckolded him right that classic father-daughter bonding Mm -hmm. experience (laughs) she's um She's, you know, she's drunk, she's skipping curfew, she's being really snotty, and then by the end of the movie, um, she's standing up to to Robert Forster and defending him.
1: It's her that has to change, though. We open with, I'm the bad parent. I'm the backup parent. Last time I took care of her, she was three years old. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it turns out what you need to do is, like, get her invested in a little mystery, and then she'll have more sympathy for how hard it is to be you and then she'll be nicer to you. <laughs> um so anyway, the drama of this movie doesn't really work. Um on no. any there's like individual scenes and moments where it's like these are good actors in a yeah. com- in a compelling situation and you can like I think Matthew Lillard is very good in this. Mm-hmm. I think he plays mm-hmm. it perfectly and I
0: think Robert Forster's great.
1: Yeah, Robert Forster's very good. Um, um Judy but, Greer? Naturally, you, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. I have Judy Greer on this <laughs> list here. Um the 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 thing is oh wow it's like such it's such complicated messy emotions of life and then it's balanced by this like razor sharp hilarious vulgar unexpected comedy is this a funny movie
0: Reg? i was i was going to ask you the same question i was going to say was there a moment where you laughed
1: there's not a funny moment in this movie no. <laughs> this there's there's moments that attempt to be funny this this movie is dreadfully unfunny
0: there were there were two moments where I didn't laugh, but I sort of quietly smiled to myself. Mm-hmm. It, it took me the, the second watch to be like, oh, I guess this is supposed to be funny. Matt finally finds Brian. Uh, they're both on the beach. One is jogging one way. One is jogging the other way. Matt recognizes Brian because he's been lightly stalking him for the past week or, or whatever. And he, he follows him back to the va- the vacation rental and he's kind of hiding behind like, like like a bush or a sand dune or something. He sees Matt's wife, Julie, and their kids come out onto the porch and, um, you know, he sees the little family. And I was taking, the first time I watched that, I sort of took it as a dramatic moment where it's like, oh, we're upping the stakes here where, you know, not only was Liz cheating and, you know, Putting her own family in in peril um it was the same thing with with brian and like oh confronting brian would would mean hurting his wife and kids who have nothing to do with this and to me that was a dramatic moment but on the second watch i noticed that the way that that Clooney is being filmed it's like from the nose up and he's doing a lot of eyebrow acting and just being this like you you know you know you're you're very you're very typical like oh brother where art thou um you know, mugging, charming Clooney, and I was like, "Oh, I guess that's supposed to be funny." Yeah, okay. no, that's right, that's
1: exactly. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Was the exact right touchstone, which is, and even contemporary critics of the day recognized there was Cohen Brothers Clooney, and then there was like Ocean's Clooney,
0: right? And like
1: they they mention how like he'll dip into Cohen Brothers Clooney, his you know uh, burn after reading Oh, Brother, Where Art right. Thou? Sort of like just idiot dog <laughs> character. <laughs>
0: I love his idiot dog. It's so good. I it's love so a good. himbo. If you haven't if you
1: haven't seen Bird after reading, it's just it's immaculate. <laughs> but um I, I I thought it was funny that uh, Judy Greer has two kids named Skylar and Colt. I think that yes. was just like a yes. That is that is we can now pinpoint as as we as we try to define who is Judy Greer, the character, the persona, yeah. like one of those things you can put up on the board is the kind of woman who would have kids named Skylar and Colt. Yeah. It nailed yeah. it. <laughs>
0: We don't need a voiceover. <laughs> She's just called her children by name. Um, um the the other moment that I thought was pretty funny is um where Matt is complaining to Alex about um like his relationship with his daughters. And, uh, and he says, it's like, you don't have any respect for authority. And there's just this beat where she can't believe what she just heard. And the scene cuts right before there's the reaction. And I thought that was, that was okay. pretty great. Yeah. But that was like the one inspired moment of editing in this movie.
1: So can I ask you a question? Cause sure. here's another point that not every critic, but most critics seem to, uh, appreciate and enjoy. How do you feel about the character of Sid?
0: For, for my podcasting notes, the, the, the selection that I just highlighted, can you read it, please?
1: Absolutely. Sid, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> can you believe for a single moment that anyone would willingly sit next to, like be present with Sid at any time in this movie?
0: Sid describes himself as being able to cook, being able to play the guitar, and he always has weed on him. So yes, but then he he says and does in this movie all the things that he says and does. And
1: so, so egregious, like so beyond the pale, not like, oh, he's a dumb guy saying something socially awkward, but just like saying really hurtful, hateful shit constantly. And then the next scene, it's like, oh, I guess they bought Sid a plane ticket to go with
0: them. And then bought him a plane ticket to bring him back to his home. I have to wonder if Alex invites Sid to be with her at this time because she knows that it's gonna drive her dad crazy and she doesn't particularly care for him, but she just wants to needle her dad. I, I almost have to wonder if that's the By case. the time they're
1: flying out, there's they're they are sort of bonding because they are both she's the one who answers his phone at the hospital um and pretends to be his secretary and he's like, Okay, I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna right. I'm gonna go out alone and she talks him, No, no, we're all gonna go. This is we're in this together. But then Sid is there. So like at that point, I don't think she would do something that mean (laughs) as (laughs) subject someone. (laughs) That's fair. um, Do you think uh, as Michael Phillips of the the Chicago Tribune thinks that uh, Sid played by Nick Krause makes every conceivable stoner slacker cliche newly viable?
0: I think he is more mean spirited than your typical stoner slapper so cliché. You would not
1: enjoy, You would not agree with Betsy Sharkey, who said he the sweet stoner friend.
0: Sid. So there's a scene where we meet Liz's mother, so Alex's grandmother, and Sid is there, and it is obvious that uh, this woman is suffering from. Uh, some sort of memory loss. She has dementia or something. It's never named, but it's pretty obvious from the way that she's acting and the way that people are talking to her that um, she doesn't quite understand where she is and what's going on. And she's probably going to learn again that her daughter is dying in the hospital and Sid doesn't even try to hide the fact that he's laughing at her. And doesn't seem to understand what's going on, which mm, I, I bad faith argument on Sid's part, if you want my opinion. I,
1: I totally think this, this movie is just like, this guy is so stupid. Isn't that hilarious? But maybe he's not. Maybe this guy's got some wisdom, too. Yeah, okay, <laughs> there's yeah, like yeah. that one scene where it's like maybe Sid kind of has it figured out actually maybe the maybe this uh, maybe the still water has uh, hidden depths
0: yeah the still water who can't shut the fuck up oh uh, unbelievable <laughs> but like no, so I, I mean I, I guess that scene exists so that Robert Forster can punch him which just feels like a, again like a very Alexander Payne thing I, to well, have in the there reason, just...
1: the reason Sid exists at all is because this is this like super schematic dramedy yeah and they realize that everyone is too sad for the comedy part of the dramedy yeah and like what do you do when you're a hack and you need a movie to be funny you add a stupid person to say stupid things Yeah, and they're just like well we gotta have someone who doesn't have an investment and can just say outrageous things uh, with no provocation because that way we can any scene we can just sort of zhuzh it up with Sid saying something hilarious right? Um, but in fact it is nails on chalkboard and every subsequent scene where it's like he's still there no no he's still there he has to leave. <laughs> Sid is horrible. And like this movie's already not enjoying it. Sid is where I'm like, I need to get off this ride. This is the... the I do not trust the taste of anyone involved making this movie if if they think that this is a viable uh, storytelling choice.
0: Cliché at best. Yeah. Nails on chalkboard is, is, is a way to put it.
1: Um, George Clooney. Do you think... Uh, George Clooney got a lot of notice for being quote, cast against type uh, in this movie. Do you think George Clooney, A, is good, B, is doing something surprising here.
0: I think he's fine. Um, you know, I, I find George Clooney very charming. Mm-hmm. Um, the last movie I saw him in was uh I, I saw Oceans Eleven maybe like a month or two ago. So I think like a lot of people who saw this movie, that's that was probably fresh in their minds too, at least a little bit. So uh you know you know that being one of his iconic roles, this is a lot more subdued. I think I think for a character who is dealing with some really um, heavy life experiences where he has to step up emotionally and has seemingly no experience doing that. He gives a very good performance. Um, against type, that, that feels like a bit of a stretch. It's, it, he is like,
1: I'm the guy in the family who has everything all together. I'm a highly professional real estate lawyer. I know what I'm doing and I do it well enough to provide for my family and never touch my royalty money.
0: Yeah, that's like super Clooney. <laughs> that's, like, yeah. that's like Michael Clayton. That's the clooney <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Do you agree that he's a schlub, as many contemporary reviews oh pointed out?
0: Oh my god. Do you
1: believe he's virtually unrecognizable with bad hair, unkempt eyebrows, and trousers hitched up half an inch below boob base, uh, like Owen Nichols of NMEs?
0: <laughs> I think he's a middle-aged dad who we're largely seeing at home. He's not in a casino he's not you know being a super spy he's he's a middle-aged dad at home i don't think he's a schlub i think if he has to go in to like a big corporate meeting he cleans up and he cleans up fucking well because he's george clooney right I, I i think that's a ridiculous thing I, to say I, that to me is the what, exact what same, is he supposed to be wearing
1: that, that to me is the exact same as the there are clouds in a movie that takes place in hawaii yeah
0: the man's skimming his pool like like what is he supposed to be wearing seriously
1: he's not wearing armani yeah <laughs> like <laughs> What's going on? I think George Clooney works when the movie is in like a a higher register when it is like we're sort of sneaking around and we're Mm -hmm. like when they when they first meet Brian Spear and they're like and and uh, his wife Julie Julie Spear goes inside to get them drinks and they just start needling him and he's like oh I don't know maybe she likes that he's so verbose like you know they're (laughs) just like like that the thing is like that's where it's like okay that's the Clooney who has like a thing to play with
0: yeah I I love the confrontation between him and Matthew I think
1: that's a great I think that's a great scene. Um I think that's like definitely the best scene in the movie is when they finally go to that cabin. But um the, uh, like I think I think there are just so many actors who are better suited to a lot of the grief and the ugliness. like if you are supposed to start off thinking like, God, this guy's a terrible dad like he doesn't look like a terrible dad. He doesn't he doesn't seem to get mad. He keeps his shit together really well. He is Mr. unflappable generally other than when he's like running in his flip-flops to his uh, after learning about his
0: I I mean I I guess but he's just it just seems like he's so he's so emotionally distant and doesn't seem to know his daughters and they're very angry at him and he just seems to 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 blame everyone for reacting to him being emotionally checked out, which he readily admits in the voiceover. Um, you know, uh, again, again, let you know, I haven't taken care of her since I was, since she was three and now she's 10. Well, that's, that's seven years, my guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you seem to know the importance of seven years in other contexts, right. but like, like you, you just, you just like make no connection to your daughter. And then you, and then you wonder why she's angry and you don't know how to, had to shepherd her through these difficult feelings, you know? Yeah. I,
1: I just, I think there, I think it just, there's a lot that doesn't play on his face that would play on other people's faces mm. because he's George Clooney. And it's just, I just think he's miscast and I don't think he does a bad job, but I just think there's probably a lot of people who would have done a better job um probably not a better job of like drawing money to the box office this was a big hit True. and if this was a big hit with uh you know if this was the exact same script with a less beloved movie star in the center of the movie probably people would go oh that that's not a must see
0: is is there an actor who comes to mind who you would who you think would do a better job in this role? No,
1: <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had, I had thought of that previously. The one, the better role I can say is that George Clooney lost his wife in Solaris, the uh, Steven Soderbergh remake of the Andre uh-huh. Tarkovsky film, uh-huh. and that is a movie about grief. That is a movie with a good script, um, and he's able to, you know, portray all these conflicting emotions much more accurately because. Uh, he is just sort of supported by a better movie. Um,
0: and there's nothing schlubby about being an astronaut. No, there's so. nothing
1: schlubby about George Clooney and Solaris. It's 2002 Clooney. That's classic Cloon.
0: <laughs> classic Cloon. <laughs> Hell um, yeah.
1: Now, there is something else. There's Judy Greer. Perhaps the most delightful surprise is Judy Greer, whose best friend parts have invariably been better than the romantic comedies in which she frequently appears. Given a rare dramatic role as Lillard's cheated upon wife, she steps up to the plate and knocks it completely out of the park. Like the movie, Clooney, and Payne, she will not be forgotten during award season. That was Lou Luminick of the New York Post. The same goes for Judy Greer, who, like Forrester, contributes a supporting turn worthy of an Oscar nomination. As the wife of Elizabeth's lover, sweet and initially unaware of why Matt and his daughters have come around to visit Kauai, Greer hasn't anything particularly interesting to play in her initial scene with Clooney. Yet the interplay between them is so relaxed and easygoing, we slowly realize that we're being told a great deal about this woman, her outlook, her bargains, and we're shown something new about Matt's conflictive motives and scrambled resentments. Michael Phillips, Chicago Tribune. Um... As the wife of Elizabeth's lover, Judy Greer, in just a few scenes, slices into the heart of the movie's marital crisis. That was A.O. Scott of the New York Times.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: Judy Greer getting some real notice in this movie in a way that I'm sure that she had not up to her career in the, her career in this point and possibly not since.
0: I think the phrase "delightful surprise" is a wonderful way to describe Judy Greer. The I Judy mean, Greer most effect. Real, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Delightful surprise. This, this is certainly the most prestigious movie that or any project I think that, that she had done uh, to date, did not get an Oscar nod for it as some of the critics were predicting, unfortunately. As with all the roles that we've seen her in so far, I do agree that she knocks it out of the park. I think that's a phrase that we've used to de- to describe her, uh, her performances on, on this podcast quite oh, a yeah. bit. She brings 110% as she does with every role I've seen her in. I don't know if I agree with the critics who were saying that that the character brings something else into the movie i mean just besides the fact that infidelity hurts people in this like family network you know on on both sides and it's not just about two people it's not just about three people that there's like fallout like, you know, all around, um, you know, in in a family when like a hurtful choice like that is, is made. Mm -hmm. I think, I think there are those little details, like what you said with the, with the kids having those like super white names, (laughs) which kind of, which kind of tells you like, like who this family is, what she's given to work with. She does a wonderful job with there, there are, there is the one specific, like strong choice for, uh, Julie, where, uh, she shows up at, Liz's hospital room with a big bouquet of flowers um, which does tell you something about who she is kind of as a person but there's not a lot to hold on to with her a lot of it seems very expected and very very standard where um, you know she's she's a nice lady with with kids and and she's you know friendly to these people who show up on her doorstep that she doesn't really know and, and she's just sort of going along and being a a good hostess and and, uh, a friendly neighbor. And it it just, I I don't feel like I got a great sense of who this woman is besides the surface. Yeah. I
1: think, I think, I think the way she works well is that she's well cast and it's not necessarily that she brings a lot of depth, but she brings just by being Judy Greer in this role, she brings an energy we haven't seen. So much of the movie is so caustic and so many of the people in the movie are so hurt and lashing uh-huh. out at each other and stuff. yeah. and she is just this very chipper, very sweet woman um, at the center of it and it's like and it's right at the moment where they're about to deliver their like satisfying killing blow that you that she sort of complicates it by being someone who is going to be hurt also by their triumph of right. of like delivering this news to Brian Spears right. and saying fuck you. Right. And I think the fact that it is just like someone that you're instantly like she just seems she seems very sweet. Yeah, um, and
0: and also the fact that you meet her before you meet Brian where yeah. um where Matt sees Julie with her kids on the beach and he sort of tentatively goes up and strikes up a friendly conversation with her and she's a perfectly nice lady and he says that his wife's in the hospital and she says oh i'm so sorry um and just seems like and she's not like some mean stuck-up lady where it's like guess what karen your (sighs) husband's cheating on you you
1: know and there's a direction they could have gone where it's like there's a few characters who you can tell that they exist in that movie to just be like... Like, there's the girl that uh, his youngest daughter uh, brings in to prove that her mom's in a coma. And she's yeah. like, I don't need ice cream. Too many carbs. And that is totally like a 2011 like days. shorthand. Like, yeah, don't we keep people who talk about carbs? <laughs> like, that's, that's sitcom-ass writing.
0: Also, have we mentioned Sid? <laughs>
1: also said <laughs> um this final scene with her does not deliver like all it needs considering it is sort of the like emotional climax of them i mean I, I mean i guess it's like they do scatter her ashes and stuff
0: yeah yeah that, yeah i guess that's more of like the month, though but um but yeah you are right so so there's this scene where you know um liz is in her her final days she's been taken off life support it's just a matter of time um Julie shows up with a bouquet of flowers. Um, you know, uh, it, she kind of has this conversation with Matt where she says, "You know, oh, I, it could kind of tell after you came to our vacation cabin that something was up. So I, you know, Brian admitted that." He, he cheated on me. And then um, she has this monologue uh, where she talks to, to Liz and she's basically saying things like, I, I forgive you for trying to destroy my family because I have to forgive you. And she is just getting like hysterical sobbing and eventually Matt's like, okay, that's enough. You have to stop. Um, so with that, I don't know how I, interpreted that scene i think the first time i saw it i thought like okay this is just someone who who thought that she could handle this situation and all of a sudden she's in way over her head and it is just too much so she ends up kind of spinning out more than maybe she expected to like my, my initial thought was like okay maybe she is going in and is just trying to do the right thing and be graceful and be above it all and then just finds herself you know, face to face with a dying woman who mm-hmm. who hurt they specifically
1: her. have a close up where you see this like the stained bandage on on Elizabeth's neck. Yeah, and like she looks like they would have a close up on. They don't have a lot of close ups of her face, but like they have a close up to show like this is a dying. This is like a woman who is on the verge of death. Y- yeah, that yeah. that this that she is about to lose her shit on.
0: The, I feel like the first time I watched it, I had a bit more sympathy for her. The second time I watched it, I think I was a little more thinking about how this compares with other Alexander. Pain movies. I don't like Alexander Payne quite as much as you. I mean, I know he's not like your favorite, but I I I do have more reservations about him because I do find his work consistently mean-spirited. So I was mm. kind of thinking about it in that light and I was kind of thinking, well, maybe Julie is showing up in The Flowers or a bit of a Trojan horse and she is kind of expecting to lose her shit at Liz despite the situation.
1: I I yeah. I don't I, I do not I, I agree with your first interpretation mm-hmm. that it is her like not catching herself and because and, she does seem embarrassed afterwards. She doesn't seem like, well, I did what I came to do. Right. She seems like she got out of hand and she realizes a little that she that she this is like not the time and place for what just happened.
0: There is the exchange that that Julie and Matt have right before she leaves where he is trying to console her I guess and he and he says just so you know Brian didn't love Liz he didn't really love her and she says I know that's why I'm here and I didn't know what to make of that I I that didn't really I don't know did, did you have thoughts about about what that meant because it to I, me it seems it's a it, it's it's did it seem petty to you I I Honestly, mean, I just didn't know how to interpret it. My, I
1: like I in terms of how to interpret it as a choice that the filmmakers made. I don't know, but like, how do what the character is going through? Mm-hmm. I just think if this is literally the love of her husband's life, she would never be able to. Like, it would be done.
0: So, despite a lot of film critics um, bringing a lot of praise for this movie. A.O. Scott's review did have a point in it that I thought was um, well expressed uh, that was also a, a reservation that I had watching this movie where he says in a voiceover at the beginning of The Descendants Matt King challenges the myth endemic among mainlanders that Hawaii where he lives is a paradise on earth. His brief rant is buttressed by images of poverty and grime that are powerful but also slightly misleading since Matt's story is not or at least not explicitly one of deprivation or social inequality. Though he is a bit uncomfortable about admitting it, and though he tries to live a life of low-key middle-class normalcy, Matt, a real estate lawyer, is as close to an aristocrat as it is possible for an American to be. So that quote speaks to um, some of my reservations about what the other critics were uh, we're praising about like, oh, a Hawaii that you usually don't see in movies.
1: Not, not the postcard Hawaii, the real Hawaii right. is sort of the implication.
0: Yeah, where this movie is pretty gosh darn white. Yeah. <laughs> and Hawaii is a pretty diverse place. Um, My second watch through, I was just trying to keep my eye out for, you know, characters who were people of color who had names. There was one character by my count and that was the girl that Scotty bullies and that's she's really just in one scene and it's um she's just sort of there so we can see that Matt is a bad parent
1: but then there's also like an irony where it's like she's sitting on the couch watching Dog the Bounty Hunter and she is and her mom is like a little overbearing and you, I get the feeling that you're not supposed to be on her mom's side either
0: right but that's like, like the only the only time in the movie that we really step away from these like f- from this white family who's very affluent so to
1: to to focus on obnoxious people of color Basically yeah <laughs> yeah um
0: I don't know a ton about Hawaii there is a history of American imperialism in Hawaii um you know I I don't think that's a secret the way that this movie handles it or doesn't handle it is pretty clunky as <laughs> As most other topics in this movie are handled, you know, we have this family where they do have an ancestor who is, you know, indigenous Hawaiian, but there's, you know, everyone in the family is white.
1: Howly as hell, as they put it. Yeah, howly as hell. The Hawaiian word for white.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, or
1: for Caucasian, I believe, not necessarily the color white.
0: Right, right. Um There's uh, these like recurring images of the old photographs of generations previous in the family that we keep kind of cutting back to when we're in uh, the family's home. And yeah, there is that that one, you know, great, great, great grandmother who is like, you know, an indigenous Hawaiian woman. Everyone else in the family is A rich white person who looks like they're on vacation. So there's this weird tension where, you know, as you said, with the way that Matt kind of wields his grief uh, when it's convenient to him, they do the same thing with their family legacy. Matt only seems to find a sense of responsibility towards his family's history uh, and their roots in Hawaii after he finds out that uh, his wife's lover would financially benefit from them selling the land to a developer, as opposed to finding another solution for it, which seems awfully convenient. As as much as as there is some development with like him connecting with his daughters, there's no development of like identity. There's no there's no uh, confrontation. Between like the, these two conflicting parts of the family's history, and and when they're talking about Hawaii as um you know the the real Hawaii, it's it's not this tourist destination. It still feels like it's largely a set dressing. You have you have like like that one scene sort of at the beginning where it's like oh Scotty's in kind of having some trouble at school and Matt can't handle it and it's just sort of like you know, these characters who were there to kind of set that up and then, and then disappear. And then you have, you have the music and you have like, like the, the, their photographs on their wall, but it doesn't seem like it's, there's, there's nothing about it. That's really like in the story. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not the meat and bones of the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, 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 yeah it, just, it wants
1: to get points for addressing larger cultural issues of Hawaii without addressing larger cultural issues of Hawaii exactly
0: like where A.O. Scott says there is you know in the beginning like this little montage of people you know just like walking around the streets of Honolulu and you know on on the beach and it's like oh it's this like really diverse society and it's just people going about their lives <laughs> and, and say then, goodbye
1: <laughs> yeah because <laughs> the, the people who aren't attractive the people who whatever like we're not going to see them again we're yeah. only seeing movie stars from this point on
0: yeah exactly uh, having watched this movie for the first time, I said, huh, I wonder if there is a movie about a family dealing with bereavement that is set in Hawaii uh, that maybe does a better job. And I remembered my very favorite Disney movie, Lilo and Stitch. Ah. <laughs> so I rewatched that. I think Lilo and Stitch is, does a better job of being the descendants than the descendants does. Yeah. <laughs> So Lilo and such it is it is a movie that is aimed at kids. So when it comes to sort of incorporating culture, it is a bit more on the nose and it it does it is a bit you know you're seeing the iconic stuff where it's it's like, you know, Lilo um is learning how to dance hula at a hula school, and um, she and her sister go surfing. So there are those sort of like iconic parts of the culture that you see, but also you know they're they're talking about you know their cultural values and how that affects who they are as a family, and you know her sister works at the the restaurants that the tourists go to so if you see another side of hawaii yeah i think i think like like seeing behind the scenes at like a, a tourist trap restaurant is prop you know just considering that like um tourism is such a huge industry there like that, that's a more grounded way of doing it that that's a more reasonable way of saying like oh you, you're really like not seeing the the like you know what you expect as an outsider from hawaii also also does what we were talking about wishing that the descendants did where the grief that this family is experiencing comes through in their day-to-day lives and how they talk to each other and how they act you don't find out until the the latter half of that movie that Lilo and Nani's parents died in a car accident like you you don't find that out until you're you're deep into that movie and like oh that's what this family's grief is it's not named until you you get a sense of, of who they are and it's just like so much more impactful when that when that happens when it's like you know you have this little girl who's behaving so strangely and then finally it's like oh so that's what's going on that's why you know that's why she's been kind of struggling to to relate to the people in her in her community and that's why she's so you know like activated so easily and all this stuff and that movie's like sub 90 minutes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does it does everything that the descendants wants to do and it does it more effectively in much less time and um, stitch gets a chainsaw and stitch gets a chainsaw at a certain point
1: there's not enough chainsaw Do <laughs> you think that you think that when uh jim rash and, and what's his name were writing this uh, script originally adapting this novel they were like you know, this Sid, he's got real Stitch energy. I think we could take this place. Spark. <laughs> he's a real agent of chaos. You know, like Stitch, our favorite movie that we're trying to.
0: <laughs> Friggin' Sid. Oh,
1: Sid. God cannot believe anyone. all these people tolerated Sid. <laughs> Best movie of the year, New York Times critics said. Sid. Unbelievable. <laughs> Um, I have, I have nothing else to add about this movie other than the fact that I'm so happy that I don't have to watch it again. I've seen it three times now and now I never have to watch The Descendants again.
0: Actually, I do have one more point about this movie where I suspect that there was a fair amount that was cut out. And the reason that I suspect that is because you have um, Michael Ankin, who played Truman on Twin Peaks as one of the cousins, and he does not get one line in this movie. He's just there in the background. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why so would you do that? I think that this was probably a three hour epic at one point, and they said Alexander Payne were not doing that.
1: I think the scene where he initially talked to Bo Bridges and he plays a Lucas Arts adventure game where he goes through Bo Bridge's dry dialogue tree about Brian Spears, I think that scene was originally twice as long and had twice as many reasons for the audience to go, wait, why isn't Bo Bridges asking him why he's asking all these fucking questions (laughs) he's just like yeah seems like whoever runs that real estate deal is gonna run into quite a bit of cash (laughs) it's like not if we don't do that resort that real estate deal yeah but i thought we wanted to like you at no point are you like hey why are you asking me 20 questions about this random dude Like, it just does not... Ing- it's kind of, like, horrible-ass dialogue tree adventure game crap. It, that, that, to me, is, like, the nadir of the movie.
0: They shaved off the few seconds at the end of that scene where they go back to say goodbye to Bo Bridges and there's just, like, dot, dot, dot over his head. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. The Descendants. It's a, it's a hell of a thing, and no one has to watch it.
0: <laughs> you don't. It's not even on Hulu. It's not on Netflix. Yeah, We had to get it from the library. Yeah,
1: yeah, and... uh and no one has to watch it. Thankfully, this podcast is not just us talking about the movie that Judy Greer is in. Oh no! We have a growing menagerie of different uh, podcast segments every week, uh, in all circling around uh, the uh, woman of the hour, Judy Greer. Um, do, who wants to? You want? You want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. So, what was? What's your segment?
0: After watching this movie, I knew the level of thought and gravity that I had to bring to the segment. Mm -hmm. So in the descendants, Judy Greer's character is named Julie spear. My segment is that we come up with another character for her to play in an Oscar bait movie with a name that's no more than three letters off from her actual name. And the name of my segment is so close and yet so Greer.
1: Oh, I like it. Oh, thank you. I like it very much. Um, Why don't I, you go first? I will go first. Uh, in my Oscar bait movie, uh, Judy Greer plays a woman named Mildred Sanderson. And you might say, what? hey, that's not three letters off from Judy it's Greer. That's not
0: three letters off from Judy Greer. But
1: the thing is, she has a stage name as well. Because in this movie, Judy Greer is, in fact, an adult film actress named Juicy Treat. J U C Y. T-R-E-E-T And this is an Oscar bait movie where she has to balance the often chaotic world of the adult film industry with a court case where she's trying to maintain custody of her kids and deal with the horrible sexist uh, judicial system that doesn't think she's a fit mother. Also, maybe she has a drug addiction because she's in the sex industry and it's an Oscar bait movie, so they're not going to have the most nuanced view of everything. That doesn't necessarily mean she doesn't love her kid. Um, the movie is called MILF because it's really confrontational like that. <laughs> <laughs> Juicy Treats. <laughs>
0: I like this. Do you do you have any other uh, cast or crew attached to uh, your pitch?
1: I have one uh, dialogue exchange. Okay. That uh, is in the trailer that okay. I that I just came up with right now, which is someone says, "Well, look, maybe if you kept a lower profile, what if you just started an OnlyFans?" And she says, "OnlyFans is where careers go to die, Daryl." <laughs>
0: I can hear it. I can hear her saying it. I'm, I'm imagining like, like, like she's putting on like sparkly eyeshadow oh. while she's doing it, and just kind of like, just kind of tosses it off over her shoulder. Um, mm.
1: <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's uh, what's the
0: Flesh for Fantasy by Billy Idol is like the, the music <laughs> in the trailer. Love it. <laughs> Oh yeah,
1: that's uh, uh, Judy Greer playing Juicy Treat and all Milk. All
0: right, all right, Juicy Treat, like it. I came up with this question and I panicked a little bit, but then the answer came to me in a dream. <laughs> this is unhinged. We have to stop doing this podcast if you're dreaming about it. We have to keep doing this podcast (laughs) until I learn how to lucid dream. So (laughs) strap in because I can't even bring myself to keep a dream journal.
1: At some point, this podcast is going to become about a Technicolor dream coat that you're going to make and we're all going to be in trouble.
0: And it's going to be on the Halloween episode. It's going to be on the Halloween
1: episode. My segment is nine fat calves, nine
0: skinny calves. (laughs) So I had a dream. A dream about you, Judy. Um, in my dream, uh, Judy Greer and Jason Schwartzman were undercover spies and they were at a bowling alley. <laughs>
1: I, I, I love this. I, <laughs> uh,
0: it was one of those moments in a dream. I, I know I'm, I'm doing the thing where I talk about dreams and I'm doing it on a podcast, which is like just the most egregious, like, like, please don't dox me. Um <laughs> It was just one of those moments in a dream where it's like you see it and you just kind of like know the context and then you go on to the next thing. But I remembered it when I woke up and I said, OK, we're going with it. So Judy Greer and Jason Schwartzman are spies and they're undercover spies at a bowling alley. So this is a Cold War era movie about a dysfunctional family that owns a bowling alley. Now, I thought to myself, Jason Schwartzman also, like, a character actor also does, like, a lot of kind of quirky projects. So, what what would we see him in that would be Oscar bait? Wes Anderson's next project. Because oh. he's in fucking all of uh, them. And,
1: of course, they always get at least nominated for Best Original Screenplay.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, this is... Um, Wes Anderson usually he is um looking at people who are like old money higher echelons of society um so I think this is like um I I was really struggling to think of a way to make a bowling alley like that level of fancy I think maybe it's like the first bowling alley uh in America or it has it's like maybe maybe it's like that bowling alley in the basement of the White House (laughs) You Know it, yeah. it's, it's just the fan, it's it, or, or it's that, it's that, uh, that like hipster bowling alley in Logan Square with the expensive cocktails. Well, that's
1: right, it's typically at a warehouse and yeah. has, a, has a chill out tent in the back.
0: <laughs> so, so this is a, a very, um, fancy family owned uh bowling alley during the Cold War era. Um, uh, Judy Greer and Jason Schwartzman, um, play. Soviet spies who are in America. um, They are patrons of the bowling alley. They organize the bowling league, and that is their front to try and convert local people in the community to communism. I think Wes Anderson did a really clunky job with politics in French dispatch. So I think he wants to give it another go. Mm. Uh, And that's where uh, this movie kind of steps in. So these two spies, um, because it's a, because they're fancy people in a fancy Wes Anderson movie, they are both um, lovers of classical music and their favorite um, composer is Edvard Grieg. So um, they take Grieg as their last name um, however, when um, when their their Soviet comrade was forging their passports, uh, he he switched the names that they were supposed to have. So Judy Greer's character is Rudy Greig, and Jason Schwartzman's character is Petunia Greig, and they are here to subvert the corrupt capitalist system. And good on them, I say.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it's a new Wes Anderson movie. I'd watch it anyway, but exactly. certainly, certainly, Wes Anderson, um, taking his chic eye to like Midwest uh, bowling or whatever would yes. just be like that's a fascinating. Uh, um,
0: I, I think I wonder if this would be some desperate money grab effort on like Netflix's part, and it's like. You fucking cinephile nerds have been waiting for this for twenty years. Finally, Wes Anderson and the Coen Brothers together again <laughs> yeah, for yeah, the yeah. first time, and this is the movie <laughs> that comes out of it.
1: I was definitely uh, thinking about the uh, scenes in The Big Lebowski and being like, "Yeah, never has a, and, and not since then have the has the bowling alley looked so fabulous." I have a segment as well. Um, I thought this was going to be an opportunity for our very first repeat segment on the very first episode of this podcast. I came up with an idea called Judy's Mm Garland's where she we talk about what scene in the movie would be playing during the Academy Awards. Um, when she gets nominated for an award for her performance, like what's the big flashy emotional moment? Mm-hmm. The problem is there's only one answer to that question, and it's actually she. This is a rare movie where she actually gets that moment, and people were literally like, "I think she's gonna." Did you see that one scene that they? It's the kind of scene they'd play at the Academy Awards after right. someone's been nominated. I think she's gonna get nominated. Um, so that wouldn't be an interesting segment. It would just be us recapping that. Mm-hmm. So instead. Uh, keeping with the Oscar theme of the episode, I uh, thought we would go with, um, something a little different, which is what if she did win an Academy Award for this movie, what would happen next in her life, in her career? Mm. And this segment is called Judy Greer's new chic career. Um, (laughs) now I have to say, I was thinking hard about like, what does prestige Judy Greer look like? And it was very difficult to think of. And then I I was thinking in terms of biopics and I came Mm -hmm. up with what famous woman would I have Judy Greer play? And then I realized, oh, she would be Joan Didion. And then I thought to myself, all right, Judy Greer, let's say she can't capitalize the next year. This is 2011, so this is a 2013 movie. How old is she? How old was Joan Didion at the time? That placed Joan Didion in the early to Mm mid-70s. And then I go, oh, you know what would be a really fascinating uh, context for a biopic? Is Joan Didion, along with her husband, co-wrote the screenplay for the film adaptation of her book, Play It As It Lays. So in her her famous novel came out, very important seminal novel for her career, Play It As It Lays, 1970. Two years later, Frank Perry does the movie version um, with uh, Anthony Perkins, and uh, Tuesday Weld, I think, uh, plays the main character. So we have Joan Didion uh, on sets based on a novel that she based on her own life, Um, in a novel that takes that sort of takes place in the world of Hollywood and films. So it's this like metafictional uh, postmodern sort of way where she's in this like funhouse mirror version of her life um, and looking back at what she has accomplished and wondering like what the hell it has all meant now that she is successful and, you know, slouching towards Bethlehem came out in the late sixties and that was a big deal and stuff like that. Um, She has, she, nearly divorced her husband in 1969 and that part of in part of that inspired the novel played as it lays so like you have this them rehashing their arguments and their their sort of acrimonious relationship and also that was where she started to get the very first symptoms that would later she would come to realize that she had ms um wow so we have this complete package of a biopic where it's like that slice of life biopic it's not soup to nuts it's that like it's a it's a surreal moment of someone's life. It's not necessarily the most dramatic thing, but it's post the important thing, so people can come up to her and go, "Aren't you Joan Didion, the author of this?" For all the dummies in the <laughs> audience who need that, and you can uh, have a little bit of like a physical disability, you know, uh, you know, illness drama as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she's in this. Uh, she wins two Academy Awards. She wins Best Actress and she wins Best Picture because she produced this as well. Because this is this was always her dream project, of course. Oh, Judy course. Greer always wanted this. This is always ever since she read "Play It as It Lay." She realized that this is it's had to be a movie. Um, and the thing is, once you are on top and then you win more Academy Awards and you have nothing left to achieve, what does Judy Greer do? And she goes back to doing what she's doing now. I don't think her career would change that much so i didn't want to have the segment be be me saying oh she'd be the same because that's just how she is um i wanted to come up with something that would be different but i like the idea of her being this uh beloved academy award-winning figure who then goes back to like being in funny or die videos or whatever And that that is, I think it's like a brief blip of greatness. And she doesn't really have that aspiration to be like this fantastic, you know, Mm -hmm. high achieving, uh, dramatic artist. And she, you know, maybe she gets a little bit better roles and she's in more prestigious movies. But Mm -hmm. she's still just like constantly working and she will just be a goofy role in some strange comedy.
0: I I feel like you often see uh, men in Hollywood who have that kind of career where, where they, they, um, they get a lot of traction doing prestigious stuff and then kind of go later in their careers into, uh, more eccentric projects, more comedies like Alec Baldwin, Nick, Nick Cage is kind of off on his own adventure. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Walken to an extent it would be nice to see um, like, a, like a, a middle-aged woman right. who's kind of ha- you know have, has done that where it's like oh she could have but that wasn't where her heart was and like she right. was, she was able to kind of go for the career where it's like she's enjoying herself and yeah. this is what she I do I do think
1: that is where eventually Meryl Streep ended up where um, mm. after so many nominations and awards she stopped doing like the Iron Lady kind of movies and she True. started doing Ricky and the Flash kind of movies or Into the Woods and or like Julie and Julia Uh like that to me is like uh, Meryl Streep just sort of like I can get projects made on the basis of my name and I want to have fun and Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be like where Meryl Streep's career is she has that weird tossed off iPhone shot movie with Steven Soderbergh after she was in the the laundromat which was a very weird choice so that was a (laughs) weird movie that she was in so like I think I think that is where Meryl Streep ended up eventually but Judy Greer gets there earlier because um She's not as yeah. Meryl Streep's not as prolific as Judy Greer, but that is the kind of thing I imagine. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. it's just like Judy Girl just out here having fun and being in weird stuff.
0: I like it. I like it. It's it's we 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 want to think that our girl is doing the jobs that speak to her heart. Yeah. <laughs> and and not just because she has to like afford a mortgage in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah. I mean more more importantly like I don't think I don't think she has to worry about money. I think that her personality would not let her stop working. I, I think mm-hmm. she would still worry about money. Just cuz she yeah. doesn't have to doesn't mean that she is.
0: Yeah. She she is from the Midwest, so so there is that kind of like like work ethic yeah, yeah. um that the folks get when they when they grow up in this region for sure.
1: So that was my vision right. of uh, Judy Greer's new sheet career.
0: I I well, that that makes me feel like my uh my answer is a bit more bittersweet because I felt that Judy Greer's new chic career um was going to bring her into uh, doing more work that you expect from actresses who are nominated and win Best Supporting Actress, uh, like Octavia Butler, Olivia Coleman, um, where you know they did more uh, like earlier in their careers. You see them, you see them in more like comedic work, and then um, now they're in like the part of their career, like like post nomination, post win, where they're doing. Um, more dramatic work, um, more historic work, like like you were saying with, with your Joan Didion movie. Um, so that's kind of where I saw her career going. Like certainly less TV than she does um, and more just like like staying in that realm of sort of prestige feature films. Specifically what I was thinking was a play called Gideon's Knot by Jonna Adams, um, which is this super intense full length play two people two two women um and it is about a parent teacher meeting where the child in question has just died by suicide and presumably the the inciting incident for all of this was the child being expelled from school for writing a short story where this, like, really fantastical but graphic, graphic violence is visited upon all of the students and teachers in the school. Basically, it's like like a mouth to hell opens up and, and just, like, all this, you know, um, like, very imaginative but, like, very graphic disturbing violence uh, happens and then the kid gets expelled and, um, and dies and then it's sort of um, the... The, the teacher who uh, who reported him for discipline uh, and his mother having a conversation. It's obviously, it's a really heavy piece with, with, with some very difficult, deeply difficult moments. And I just thought Judy Greer playing this teacher who is kind of burnt out, kind of not in the profession that she wants to be in, but is, you know, trying to be, a good teacher and trying to do the right thing, uh, and just having it blow up in her face in this like really intense, horrific manner. Um, I could just, I could just see her in that role, maybe opposite like a Viola Davis or a Kate Blanchett.
1: Sure, uh, very, uh, very intense two hander. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that mm. is that she is in a movie that played at Sundance. Mm -hmm. Um, directed by Michael Shannon called Eric LaRue, where she plays the mother of a high school murderer who prepares to visit her son in prison and meets with a collection of bereaved local parents. Oh, That seems to me to be a similarly intense sort of like, there's like just really icky feelings and like Mm -hmm. the difficulty of being a mother and like the the guilt of where did I go wrong or where did someone else go wrong? Or like, Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be a very similar setup. So clearly, someone thought that she had she had this. Gideon's not in her.
0: Yeah, I, I guess so. On 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 the set of Potter'sville, in between takes, they were like, "Hey, so what are you, what are your thoughts on, on mass shootings?"
1: They they just <laughs> they just sat down and watched. We need to talk about Kevin and laughed and laughed. <laughs>
0: that's how they kept it
1: light on the set. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I, I think that's uh, that's what we have for our rotating, ever evolving uh, segment of chaos, and from there we move on to the final hour. The the big enchilada. That's it. Nailed it. We're gonna go with that one. We like to call it the
1: big enchilada.
0: <laughs> Jutilization. con queso. <laughs> podcast is great go ahead thank you <laughs> what is judi- what is
1: utilization um
0: in judi- <laughs> in patrick uh rank the movies we've seen by how well judy greer's talents were employed so not necessarily how much we liked the movie how prestigious it is no all of that goes out the window we're we're just asking did judy greer get the opportunity to to showcase what makes her so great? So this is our fourth episode. Um, so it could be number one with a bullet or it could be down at number four. Right now we have good boy at number one.
1: Mm-hmm. Leading role. Very well cast. Hard, yeah. to, hard to top.
0: Yeah. Even though even though she did get uh, presumably more uh, critical acclaim. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, as far as this podcast goes, I think it's safe to say that, that we're ranking this below good boy. Absolutely. What's at number two right now? What, at number two, we have What Planet Are You From? where she plays like sort of a a, a, a ditzy one night stand uh, with Gary Shandling, a flight attendant. Mm-hmm. We we had an argument about this one uh, yes. where, where you thought Pottersville was better. I did not, and we flipped a coin, and the coin said, put what planet are you from at number two.
1: That's right. Are we going to have to have an argument again? Because I think that we need to put the Descendants at number two.
0: I'll have to agree with you. I'm not happy about it, <laughs> to be quite frank. <laughs> this I, is
1: not the second best movie we've covered.
0: No, not in, not not at all. Um, I think both of these roles suffer from a, um, a, a lack of... Uh, specificity when it comes to her character. Um they they do, they do make a couple interesting choices here and there, but at at the end of the day, you know, it, they're they're very um cookie cutter type roles. But the emotional intensity that she brings to that final scene um in the descendants and also the um the the, the wrench that gets thrown into the 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 confrontation between Matt and Brian where she walks this thin line between being the the force in the scene that dampens why Alex and Matt have come this far and what they want to achieve but you can't hate her for it it does take a lot of skill it does speak to her specific brand of charisma
1: yeah absolutely absolutely she's well cast apparently it was a last minute sort of a thing um where she kind of got the call and then needed to be there like two weeks later or something like that. Um, so it, it all worked out though. Cause she, she does the job uh, admirably.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a movie
1: that's not so admirable.
0: No, but that, I think that's why, that's why we love her because I think as we've probably said with every movie that we've seen so far, she shows up and she does a great job no matter what the material is. Yeah. That puts the descendants at number two uh, in our rank of Judilization. Our next episode will be the wedding planner, which is maybe maybe the quintessential uh, Judy Greer best friend in a rom com role. I am
1: so excited we're finally getting Judy Greer best friend in a rom com. <laughs> I've been just like chomping at the bit to see Judy Greer best friend in a rom-com.
0: Oh yeah, this is the kind of thing that everyone knows her for. And this is, I mean, it's it's J-Lo and Matthew McConaughey, early aughts, that that is like peak rom-com. So absolutely. And it'll be right around Valentine's Day too. Oh, beautiful. You can follow us on Mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party. That's 96greers. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And And say goodbye to these.